Anybody ever tried to go it alone? Some of y'all have, I could tell. Is it not really tough to go it alone sometimes? Is it not easy whenever you are going it alone to maybe find the wrong company? Because some companies better than no company, right? Isn't that our mindset maybe sometimes? We think just to be with somebody is going to make it a little easier. I'm going to go ahead and tell you uh, by, by David's fall and some of the temptations we ourselves get into, to be with the wrong company is worse than just going it alone. You don't have to go it alone. I'm not to say that either because Christ is constantly there with an outstretched hand for us. The body, the the, the church, which I love, you know, and, and I tell married people all the time sometime right before we're, we're getting ready to do everything, you know, hey, don't don't let reaching out for help be a sign of weakness. It's a sign of faith, because if you've got the faith to reach out and know that you can you can grab a hold of your brothers and sisters that are around you, that God has placed there for you. That is a sign of faith. That's a sign of trust that God has lined up the body that you are in to support you and build you and correct you and help you and, and do those things that need to be done. So you don't have to go it alone. I just want to make sure as we look at David this morning that we don't fall in that trap of rather than go it alone, we fall in with the wrong company. Because the wrong company would get us in a lot of trouble. Now, I say that to also look at this. I love personally how honest scripture is. I do. And, and, and anybody who tries to say that, that the Bible isn't written to be true, I'm, I'm blown away by because why would somebody write some of the stuff they write if it wasn't true? My, my point being this, I don't know if you caught it. The Bible treats its heroes just like anybody else. You ever catch that? And I love that. Some of us were like, no, that's the hero of the story. He's No, he's just a regular old dude, just like you and me. He's got his faults. He's got imperfections. Scripture gives a perfect, authentic representation of exactly what it is. He, scripture never puts its heroes on on unrealistic pedestals. You know, even the things that Christ said aren't on this unrealistic uh, idea. It, it's never an attempt to to let God's favor, you know, make these plastic saints with great halos. Uh, appear to be more than they are to us. They're real life people. You know, and you think about just some of our most popular ones that we know. Abraham was a liar. You know, Noah got drunk. Uh, Moses lost his temper. Anybody can relate with that? Uh, he lost his temper so much he murdered. Um, you know, so, so these guys are, are real, fully human. And I think scripture does that for two reasons while we look at David this morning. One, so we'll know they're real people. So that we will see that the scripture and all its writing is never tempted to leave their skeletons in the closet and hide them from us. This is real stuff. They really lived. They had real imperfections. And we can learn from them. Scripture says every part of it is written to teach us. So, And the second reason is this. So that we can identify with them. If they were a bunch of perfect saints, maybe you guys could relate with them, but I could not. If they were perfect saints, I wouldn't be able to identify and relate with these guys at all. They would be way ahead of me. Most of them are still way ahead. Of me, but I love reading and knowing and looking at this stuff and say, you know what? If God can use them and their flaws, then He can definitely use me too. And if He can use them and their flaws, He can definitely use any single one of us in this room the same way. You know, moments ago when we were starting, I said that up until now, David's faith really hasn't faltered a whole lot. He made a couple hiccups, a couple mistakes that he admits to, but that never changes his faith because he instantly admits to them. And when I first read 27, and it does relate to this lesson. My, my first thing and, and all my notes up until then had been regarding living in the in the world, but being God's. As far as God's God, owned by God, you know, not be you're not going to be a God. Sorry, we don't practice that here. Uh, but, you, you know, living in the world, be, being in the world, but not of the world. And I said, man, maybe this was God's plan for, for that lesson. And then I realized God would never plan for us to go live with the enemy. I was so wrong. And that interpretation, God will never plan. Now, he will let you go live with the enemy and he will use that to his benefit. Don't get me wrong, but he's never planning for his children to go live with the enemy and be part of the enemy. That's a direct lie from Satan. So so there's what we got to look at. As we look at this and we see, you know, David, the obedient shepherd, the, the submissive servant, the courageous warrior, the forgiving enemy. And now we see a lot of drastic mistakes because David gets in what I call the spiritual slump. And I'm going to tell you, church, some of the things we're going through right now in our lives and some of the stuff we've gone through and we're yet to go through is a direct relationship with the faith of the strength of our faith. 
Now, hear me. I'm not saying, you know, that you don't have faith because you're going through something. That's not what I'm saying. What I mean is this. It's not your lack of faith that puts you in a bad situation, but it's all it's not always a lack of faith that puts you in a bad situation. But it's always going to be the strength of your faith that gets you out of a good situation, bad situation. That makes sense. Okay, let's look at this thing that David does right here. And I, I think this is one, a good warning for us that danger is is always around the corner. Two, none of us are immune to failure despite how long we've been saved and how long we've been a member of a church and how long we've been reading scripture and, and all that type of stuff, okay? So, and, and we're only going to get through two of them. I had written down, uh, we're going to do David's doubt, David's defection, he defects, uh, and then David's deliverance. Uh, David didn't really get delivered in chapters like 29 and 30. So, uh, as good as those 12 verses were that Beth read, we're just going to stop at those 12 because God's got enough for us there. So let's start this thing. David's doubt. Doubt kills fear. No, doubt breeds fear. Doubt kills faith. And a lot of times our faith wavers because we let doubt get in the way. We left David last week on this super high spiritual note. He once again had the opportunity to kill King Saul, yet he chose not to. Look look at what he said just a couple chapters ago for David after sparing the king's life. Saul, uh, chapter 24, verse 15, he said, May the Lord judge which of us is right and punish the guilty one. He is my advocate and he will rescue me from your power. Oh, there's no wavering there. There's no doubt there. All there is is faith and confidence there. Chapter 26, he keeps that attitude. Two chapters later, still has it. 26, 24. The Lord will reward any person who is righteous and faithful. The Lord will rescue me from all trouble. Man, that sounds good, doesn't it? If God's people could speak like that and live like that, full confidence and trust in God, knowing that he's going to take care of everything, knowing that because of this faith, exactly what's happened is Saul is now, he's quit. He's quit trying to kill David. But then there's this, y'all don't have it, but if you you write in your Bible, Maybe at the end of chapter 26 and right before you got that, that part that says chapter 27, you ought to write a but right there. B-U-T comma dot dot dot. Because something, not B-U-T-T, because something had to happen between 26 and 27. Because you read this, at 26, he's full confidence. He's trusting in the Lord. He knows God's going to take care of everything. Saul is deserted and and quit chasing him and and everything's great. But when we open chapter 27, we see a direct about face in the life of David, the spiritual decline he's about to start going through. And I have to wonder why. Now, we don't know why. I can't tell you exactly what move happened after 26 and, and into 27. All I can tell you is something had to happen because when we open chapter 27, all of a sudden, verse one says this. But David kept thinking to himself. Someday Saul's going to get me. I think he actually says someday Saul's going to kill me. Man, is that not a big change from where David was for, for many chapters? God's got it. God's got it. God's got it. Holy crap, I'm still dealing with it. Someday Saul's going to kill me. I mean, just look at this change and look at how it words it. But David kept thinking to himself, folks, often the external situations that don't clear up right away the way we think they should, they, they depress us. They get us into, into questioning. They get us into discouragement. They get us into doubt. And, and when all those things come out, folks, spiritual stability is in danger. And if it was true for David, you better believe today it is true for us as well. Your spiritual stability directly relates to how we handle situations like this that keep coming. Our battle on yesterday's uh, war is not a guarantee for for your your win today. Sometimes I I think we're foolish enough to think because we won one, we're just going to keep on winning and we don't have to keep on fighting. Every morning you wake up, there's going to be a new fight, a new a new thing. Don't get me wrong. Racking up wins helps, right? Racking up wins is a, is, a, is a good feeling, but you can't rely on racking up wins. We've got to understand that every day is a new battle. We got to push through. It says that David said in his heart. Now, now, now write that down or look at that underline, however you want to word it and check that out. David didn't say this out loud. He didn't tell his friends this. He, he never even actually said it to God. We don't think, I mean, we know God knows the heart, but he didn't say he said it to God. It said that David said this in his heart. What we say in our heart has tremendous power to shape our thinking, our actions, and our whole destiny. What are you thinking in your heart this morning? 
What's going on on the inside this morning? Because, see, some of us, we can come to church and we can put on our church face and we can act all spiritual, we can act all holy, but there's something darker going on on the inside in our heart. And whatever that dark thing is that's going on in our heart, church, that eventually is going to make its way out to the surface if we don't deal with it. Verse 1, David kept, some of your translations say David, David kept thinking. He constantly thought on. Uh, however you want to word it, doesn't matter. But, but my point is this. David, David went from thinking that God was going to take care and rescue him and, and solve all trouble to someday Saul's going to get me. Our thinking changes how we handle things. How we think will directly change that. So let, let me ask you this then. Maybe between chapter 26 and chapter 27, God went back on his promise. Do we think that's what happened? Is God the kind of guy that goes back on his promises? Is God the, the kind of guy that backs out on his pledges? No. But David, because things didn't work out as he expected, understand this, because this is us guys, especially those of us that have been a, a, a faith walker in, in the kingdom for a long time. Stuff don't work the way we thought it should, and people aren't getting what we thought they should get. And that directly relates to how strong our faith is versus how strong doubt and fear begin to be. Nowhere in this chapter does it say David stopped to pray. Nowhere in this chapter does it say David called out on the Lord. All we see is that David thought to himself. He went from spiritual reliance on God to self-sufficiency. And sometimes I think that's one of the dangerous traps that we get ourselves into. Rather than knowing that we should continue to rely on God, things aren't working the way we or the world thinks it should, so we go to self-sufficiency. And that promotes doubt. Now, you've got three, three main, I guess there's maybe more, but three main ways that, that, that doubt comes in. And, and David's going to deal with this third one, but I, w- I want to look at one and two just briefly for what they are so we can be aware of it. All this is is a, is a huge warning, huge flash and yellow light. First one is intellectual doubt. Intellectual doubt. This is for those people that are so smart that when they read scripture and they realize it's inconsistent with maybe some of the things that we humans experience, we begin to doubt. Maybe the flooding of the entire earth, maybe a a man being over nine foot tall, maybe a a man being swallowed by a great fish and living in his belly for, for three days. Maybe we have a problem with the intellectual thoughts when we read certain verses and we have a hard time accepting that. And, And here's the warning. Here's the warning. If you think, well, why is that such a, a big deal if, it, if it's true? Because if you ever doubt that any part of Scripture is true, then you are saying that all of Scripture could not be true. Is that right? You take away from the, the inerrancy of Scripture. If you say that one piece of it maybe isn't true, that leaves room for a whole lot to not be true. Do we see why this is so important? There, therein is why intellectual doubt begins to deteriorate your faith. The other one we see is moral doubt. Moral doubt is this. It, it's when a person doesn't like God's commands, so we rationalize. We rationalize and maybe we think that, you know, I don't know if I believe every part of the Bible after all, so it's okay that I do what I'm doing. I'm not 100% sure this is exactly what God meant, so, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it fit my way and, and go through it this way. It becomes this, a convenient way of relieving guilt and escaping accountability. Relieving guilt and escaping accountability. That's moral doubt. And that'll lead you into a spiral decline. Then this third one, again, we go way in debt on this first two, but third one's where we're at today. It's where David's at. Circumstantial doubt. Circumstantial doubt is it. It's doubt that's produced when a person goes through a long period of problems and difficulty. Circumstantial doubt is probably some sort of doubt that every single one of us in this room either have dealt with or dealing with or are going to deal with. Because we live in a broken world that is full of all sorts of problems. We begin to wonder and question whether God really is in control and whether God really is working all things out. That's, that's, I think, is where David's at finally. David's reached this part where he's even been able to justify and feel sorry for himself because he's been such a good, obedient follower. But for eight plus years, he's lived the life of a fugitive. For eight plus years, every day he's been escaping death. For eight plus years, he's been really alone. Now, I know we can say at some point he had those hundreds of soldiers come, but let's be honest, as he, as he really gathered a relationship with them like he could have had with that family life back home, I would think it would be different. 
So for eight plus years, David's been dealing with all this, yet he's continued to spare Saul's life. And that put his little thought in his head that maybe he deserved different. Maybe he deserved better. Maybe because of all that he had done right, he's beginning to question now, why in the world has God not done something different in my story? Church, understand this. When we deal with circumstantial doubt, we begin to feel sorry for ourselves. And when we feel sorry for ourselves, this is where it, this is where it leads. I wish believers would stop playing the victim. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. Maybe you guys haven't ever dealt with, with any of that, but, but sometimes I just see believers that, that just play the victim game all the time. Nothing's ever their fault. Nothing's ever their consequence. It's always somebody else's fault and it's always they were perfect and they don't understand why they have to deal with stuff the way they deal with. And even at some point along that line, what they're doing then is they're questioning God. When you play the self-pity game, you're questioning God at some point. Because you're saying, God, I think I can handle everything and decide better than you can. And because, God, you're doing such a crappy job, I've now got doubt coming in. They think, no, that's not the way I would say it. Oh, that is the way you're saying it. That's exactly how God is interpreting it. To, to show you what I mean, not necessarily for, for this self-doubt thing, but just to show you the, the situation David's in, look back at some of the Psalms David wrote during this period of his life. Now, I hope after many weeks of, of directly correlating the Psalms with Samuel, we've caught on that we need to read a, a lot of that. But I just want to point out a couple. Psalm 10.1. Oh, Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when I need you the most? You ever felt like that? Hmm? Don't act all super spiritual in holy church. There's nothing wrong with feeling like that. I think God would want you to feel like that and admit you feel like that so a problem could get resolved. God is no different than how we handle our children and our marriages in situations like this. If we continue to try to hide everything, how's the problem going to ever be resolved? Same way with, the, with people. Some of y'all got problems with people on the other side of the church. I'm not pointing at anybody, so don't think that. Right? right? Alan and Mike don't like each other. They don't even know they don't like each other because they ain't never talked. Huh? We laugh, but is this not the way we do things? We keep all our little self-pity stuff going on on the inside and we don't share it with the other problem. We might share it with other people, though. We don't have a problem with that, right? Oh, there's never a problem getting your side of the group. Mike's got this side really not liking you, Milan. He doesn't spread it enough. You better start spreading more on your side. you got more people, so you got the advantage. That's what we do, though. We do that. Why? Because we, we want to be the winner. Because we deserve to be the winner. What part of your life really deserves for you to be the winner. And the only correct answer, by the way, would be the fact that Christ made you a winner. Nothing you did, nothing you can do, nothing you would do. Christ, right? Look at Psalm 13, 1. How long will you forget me, God? Forever? How long will you hide from me? How long must I worry and feel sad in my heart all day? How long will my enemy win over me? This is David writing, guys. This is this is a man after God's own heart writing this. I say that to say two things. It's okay to hurt. It's okay to not understand why you're going through what you're going through. And, and I ask you, may, maybe you said something like what David said. Maybe it sounds familiar. Maybe you've gotten to a point in your life where you wonder, God, why are you hiding from me? What is going on? Why is it getting worse day by day? Why, God? And I just advise you, ask God. Don't ask your neighbor. Don't ask a lost person. God's sake, please don't do that. That's all they need is more fuel to hate the Lord, right? Not believe the things of Scripture. But that's what we do, is it not? We don't get an answer, so we go to any source we can go to and try to get an answer. Because an answer is better than no answer. Wrong. That's the mindset we have, but it's wrong. There's only one right answer. It's like I tell everybody at just about every funeral I start. All of us are going to have to agree to differ on some of our beliefs today. But whether I'm right or you're right doesn't matter because the scripture is right. That's it. That just solves the argument. You don't like what I say? Well, I might be wrong. I'm not going to be wrong because I'm going to say what scripture says. But, but I just want to point it out. We can be different. Scripture is the only right way, right? This is, this is, this is real, this is real hard, guys. Because we do live in a fallen world, and, and yeah, maybe part of those original 
notes I was thinking are right, that, that we live in a world, though we're not becoming part of the world. So it's difficult to answer, answer questions like, hey, why does why did the doctor just say I got cancer? Hey, why? Why is what? Why is my grandma going through what she's going through? Why? Why is my child have to have this problem and nobody else's child is having this problem? What? Why did the car wreck have to happen to me? Why am I in debt because of something I really didn't do? What? Why? 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 You want to know number one and number two answers for that? Write them down because you're going to need them because I know you guys hate dealing with questions like this. Right? Super simple. Super simple. Number one. The truth is, I don't have a perfect answer for you. I'm dead. Y'all laughing. I'm dead serious. I'm sick of hearing believers try to come up with answers. God don't need you to invent an answer for him. Okay, he's God. He don't need you to invent any answer, any solution to the problem somebody's coming up with. He's God. That's just what we got to be. We got to understand that. I don't have a perfect answer for you. Number two is this. And this one, this one is genuine and this one is probably way more real. I don't know why you're going through what you're going through, but let me tell you about somebody who wants to go through it with you. And you make sure to tell them that though the fact that we live in a world that has fallen, corrupt, messed up and broken, we have a God that wants to walk every single one of those steps with us and has ways to help us get through them. Maybe not around them, maybe not over them, but ways to get through them. He's promised to never leave us, to never desert us. He's promised that even when we screw up things, he's still got a plan that he can make work out his way because he's that powerful. And he's that capable. Many times in our lives when we go through these these more difficult things and we begin to doubt and, and have all that stuff going through, I'm be honest, I think it's those moments that Jesus gets the closest to us. I used to think it was kind of a, a cheesy poem, but everybody know the, the footprints in the sand poem? You know, there was two sets of footprints and God gets mad at God because when he was going through his most difficult time, he realized, hold on, there's only one set of footprints. You left me. And, and finally God looks at him and says, man, it was that moment I was totally you. I was carrying you. I was that close with you at that moment. And that's so true. That's so true. If we can step back sometimes and look at what God's doing and how God's lining things up. Man, when Tammy started talking about things getting lined up, the warning, it's a tearjerker. But, but I watched Overcomer. Some of you have probably already seen it. Some of you have seen it more than once. And I just, I loved how stuff just lined up because it's so true. How sometimes God can just take the, the falling in on the wrong person to drastically change our life. And use that to change the life of other people. Maybe it's like this. Maybe difficult times are the magnet. You know, a magnet pushes and a magnet pulls. Well, a magnet can only push and pull what you're attracted to. Is that not true? So if difficult times are the magnet and that is the measuring barrier and it is pushing and pulling, then you got to ask yourself, what am I being pulled to and what am I being pushed away from? Because you're only pushed and pulled to the things you're attracted to. So maybe that's just a warning sign. Maybe you're thinking, man, I, I'm being pushed away from God and being pulled to the, to the, to the Philistines and the source of this outside world. And, and that's a problem. And beware, that is a problem then. Address it. Don't ignore it. Don't cover it up. Don't try to hide it. Address it. David came to a, a, a part in his life where he felt so alone and rejected that he began to doubt God finally. I love the fact, though, and it, again, this it doesn't come to chapter 30, but God never gave up on him and God never stopped working out his plan. You know, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the, the, the resurrection skit where the guy goes, it's Friday. And then he says some stuff, and he goes, but Sunday's coming. And it's Saturday, and he says some stuff, and he's like, but Sunday's coming. For, for David, it's been Friday, it's been Saturday for a really, really long time, but, but Sunday is coming. And some of you in the room right now, maybe you're in that same situation where you're like, you know, Friday, if y'all don't know where I'm going, I'm talking about crucifixion and resurrection, all right? It, but some of you have been thinking about crucifixion has been going on for a really long time for me. Well, just rest assured, Sunday is coming. The resurrection is coming. It's a promise from God. You can count on it. You can bank on it. It's a guarantee. Okay? Maybe not the way that the, the world's corrupted the idea of resurrection, but that's a whole nother, a whole nother thing to begin with. All right? Look at this next scene. David makes his major mistake right here. And here's, here's where I had to apologize to the Lord and realize how wrong I was on my initial root of interpretation with this, this chapter. Because David defects to the enemy camp. Now, when you look at these verses, I want you to understand this, guys. The world will always be willing to take you back. You hear me? The world will always be willing to take you back. So don't be surprised when you try this church thing out and the world will still willing to say, you know what? Come on back. Of course, they're going to take you back. They have no standards. Think about it. They don't. 
What is their standards based off of? Look at the way the world goes. The world will always take you back. And we need to understand that. One of, one of the things that, that happens in this chapter, and I think is an accurate picture for a lot of us, is that, that David gets in a situation where rather than being alone and rather trusting in the Lord still, his faith wavers and he drifts away from God and he goes to these Philistines. The same people that he was fighting for so long. Now, now hear me, and you need to be aware of this. Here, here's another cute. A lot of today is just red warnings, okay? We don't get a happy ending at the end because we, we stopped at chapter 27, verse 12, okay? But a lot of it's huge red warnings for us. The red warning is this. Could Saul ever push David to the Philistines? He could not. He could not. At no point would Saul have been able to look at David and say, you know what, David? You go live with the Philistines. What do you think David would have said? No way. No way. You can't make me go live with the enemy. I'm not doing it. Right? What pushes David to the Philistines is discouragement and despair. See, Satan will continue to use a lot of weapons on you until he finds one that works. And if he can't get a person to push you back to the way of the world, he'll get emotions. He'll get temptations. He'll get problems. He'll get discouragement and despair. Discouragement and despair is what drives David to do something that Saul could never make him do. And therefore, we get five characteristics of this downward spiral. Probably more, but I'm going to leave it at that. I had six originally. I don't know where the sixth one went. I told Crystal that yesterday. So evidently, the Lord wanted to take it away because it is gone from everything. Right? But here's number one. Reasoning becomes pessimistic. You know anybody who all their reasoning becomes pessimistic? Go, go back to verse one again so we can go through the rest of these things. Right? Verse one. I'm going to die. That's what he says. Now, we're laughing, but let's be honest. How often have we quickly become the pessimistic viewpoint with, with lack of any reasoning? Right? That God has rescued David every single time. He's put Saul within reach twice with weapons in hand. Yet now David gets to a part where, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. This is it. It's like some of you when you get a cold and you Google MD things. Right? And you find out I'm dying. No, you're not dying. Go take in a leave and sit down and take a 30 minute nap. Your headache could go away. Right? Think about it. We do this though. We get so pessimistic. I called it this and this actually, this, this phrase has been with me. I can't think of the guy who first used it. Somebody smarter than me in seminary, but, but, but he called it stinking thinking. It's stinking thinking. It's when your thinking stinks so bad. That you can actually begin to smell it for real. Am I right? Think about that now. You, you, you've thought about the smell so much that now you're actually smelling the smell. Anytime you begin to emphasize negative thoughts in your, in your life, you are headed for trouble, church. God is not a negative God. He's not commanded us to be negative at any moment. And when we mentally dwell on something, that's what becomes of our life. You can call it the slouch and grouch routine. Y'all know some of them. Some of y'all are them. You're never happy. You always criticize everything that you see other people do. You, you're never satisfied with whatever's going on. No matter how big or small it is, it's the, it's the worst thing ever. And let me tell you, if you're not the slouching grout person, don't you dare ask them how they're doing because they'll tell you and they'll tell you and they'll tell you and they'll tell you and they'll tell you that it never gets to an end. And if you're not laughing right now, maybe it's because we're talking about you. Okay? So, so just keep that in mind, right? Your mental outlook is, ne- if your mental outlook is negative, your life will become negative. It does. Scripture has a lot to say about the battlefield actually being over our mind. It, 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 we already talked about the heart being corrupt and evil for a long time, okay? Scripture don't hide that at all. So the battlefield then is over our mind. What you're thinking, how, you, how you're handling things, how, how you're resolving things, right? That the, the next time you're down, the next time stuff seems to be getting worse. Just just ask yourself, am I being pessimistic? Am I being too critical? And are those thoughts spilling over now into my direct behavior? And the worst part about this, and we do the same thing, so I'm not blaming, I'm not, I'm not blaming David. I'm just using David as an example. The worst thing about this is verse 2, what it says. David arose and went with 600 of his men. Why is that so bad? 
It was, it's bad enough when discouragement and despair mess your life up, but why you gotta mess everybody else's life up too? Right? Why do you have to take 600 of his men with him? Now, don't get me wrong. Some of you, you are thinking, well, why did that king even accept it? I think when he came with 600 warriors and he realized he could use it to his benefit, I think that's why he took him back, okay? Just to, to, to get that out there. But, the point is this, David didn't just let his discouragement and despair and, and depression and doubt affect him. It now affects 600 men and their families. It, it gets even deeper. Verse 3 talks about their families and all this. I got, why must we pull others down with us? Why do we feel that we need to pull others down with us? Does misery really love company that much? Is that, is that phrase really just that true? You know, you can keep some of your crap to yourself. And save some people a lot of misery. Now, I'm not even saying just deal with it on your own. I'm telling there's scriptural ways to deal with it. And the church is here for you. If you've got a problem to bring it, we want to love on you and help you resolve it. But we don't need you to try to bring everybody in the church down with you. We want to pull you up to us. Okay? Don't be pulling everybody down to your level. Grab a hold of the rope and pull yourself out of the hole. Okay? And if the church ain't holding the rope for you, God will hold the rope for you, I promise. Okay? I think we do a really good job, so I'm not saying here we won't. But I just be honest with you, man will always fail you. Might as well go ahead and get that truth out there, okay? You think you found the perfect one? Boy, have you messed up, right? The Lord won't, though, okay? Pessimistic reasoning takes everything wrong. Takes everything wrong. Think about when you're in a pessimistic attitude. David's doing it to his own household, by the way. It says that both his wives came with him. Anytime you've got two wives, there's trouble coming. I'm just going to say that. And I would say it both ways. So you women think I'm being me. Anytime you got two husbands, you got trouble coming. Right? That's just, this is dumb. This is just, a, this is just another proof right now when people say, yeah, but the Bible said we can marry as many people as we want. I can have a cooking wife and a cleaning wife and a sex wife and a, no. No, that happened, but I don't mean the Bible said it should happen. We understand the difference. It goes back to what I said at the beginning. I love how honest the Bible is. The Bible's telling you real life stuff that people did. It's not telling you everything that people did is what we should be doing. Right? And every time, I'm going to tell you now, go back and check. Every time we see multiple wives and multiple this and multiple that, there's always trouble coming right behind it. Okay? So, so, so I, I, I just think maybe the Bible's got a little secret message telling you wrong. Maybe it's not so secretive. All right? What did I say? Pessimistic reasoning takes everything wrong. You ever met somebody who's pessimistic and just tried to be nice to them? And they still got to take everything the wrong direction? Think about it. Now, you can joke and buddy around with some of your friends, you know, in, in a good joking way. And you get along that way and people understand it that way. But you ever tried to joke with somebody who's already got that pessimistic attitude? They don't take it that way. They take it the complete opposite way. They think you're the devil. They think the world's out to get them, and they want to pull everybody about it, and they want to tell everybody about it so they can ruin everybody else's life rather than just ruining their own. Right? That's a pessimistic attitude. Number two, we can stay on pessimistic attitude for a long time, I think, by the way y'all's responding. But number two, David's downward spiral gains momentum when he does this. He chooses the wrong companions. That one's kind of obvious. He chooses the wrong companions. Look at verse three. It said that David settled in Gath. That's a city I would have never thought David settled in. Even after they had overtaken everything, I don't think I even thought of him going there, right? Now, now review, what's Gath? Well, chapter 17, it, it said that that's where Goliath was from, right? Just a couple chapters ago, David had ran there to get away from Saul and had to act crazy and drool. You remember that scene where he's walking around acting fool and drool's coming out of his mouth just to escape getting beat up there because of the, 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 the enemy that is right there? But now it says in verse 3 of this chapter that David settles and stays in Gath. I use that word settled. I don't think that's the actual one in the scripture. Let me go back to three and say it the right way. David and his men stayed. I'm sorry. They say stayed. I say settled because this right here, we, we look at the word settling like you settled, you know, make something home. I think David was settling for something less than he was supposed to. So two words there. I think some of us right now have relationship problems, whether it be spouse or friendship or whatever else, because we've chosen to settle outside of God's will. We've chosen to want to follow our heart and emotion rather than following the Lord and getting discernment from him. We've chosen to, to handle things our way rather than handling things the Lord's way. And because of that, we've settled in some really bad areas. 
And it's in those bad areas that discouragement, doubt, and despair can come. And it's in those areas that we can quickly get pessimistic. It's in those areas we can quickly begin to play the blame game and everything else, right? But in all honesty, it's in those areas that we've done it to ourselves because we've settled outside of the will of God. And this is for every age group. First time I wrote this, my notes actually say teenagers, listen up. I think more so for teenagers, but I'll be honest. I see adults and little kids falling into this trap, too. So every age group, listen up. Be careful of the people you choose to surround yourself with. Be careful of those people that you decide to hang out with. Be careful of those that you've decided matter so much to you that you're willing to sacrifice other relationships to build that relationship. Now, some of your relationships might be great. I'm just telling you, be careful. I'm not telling you which ones are the right one. I can't do that. That's something you've got to work out between you and the Lord and that person or people. All I'm telling you is this. If you get around the wrong people and hang out with the wrong people, they don't mind dragging you down with them at all. It goes back to what we said with misery, love, and company. Nobody minds being in trouble with other people. I hated going to detention by myself, but I didn't mind going to detention at all with five or six friends because we would get in more trouble in detention. I'm just telling you, right? That's how it works. You very rarely have one student who wants to get in trouble by himself. They want to get in trouble with a bunch of them. And it's the same thing in life, is it not? And the sad part is this, and here's maybe where the warning needs to be made for people who don't understand it. Sometimes you can get legally guilty by association with some of the stuff out there. So when I tell you, be careful who you hang out with and know who you hang out with. I don't know why we're so quick to be buddy, buddy with people we don't know. I, I, I had to laugh just a little bit. Not that I endorse everything he says, but but part of his his his, his story uh, on something. I don't know, probably years ago now. Uh, uh, T.D. Jakes had met a guy who I don't know, a big famous pastor or whatever, but he had met a guy who wanted him to endorse. Some product that the guy built. I can't even remember what the product was now, but I just, I just love what he says at the line right here. And, and the guy's going on and on about pitching it and, and making more money, which I'm surprised TJ can go with. But uh, on, on that on that side note, you know, he's he's going through all this and being pitched on this, and he says this at the very end. He says, "How much low or how low should some of this guy's friends think of him that he had to come to somebody he just now met and pitch this idea to?" He's saying, "I don't even know the guy." Yet the guy is willing for me to endorse his product. How often is it we do that? We don't get to know somebody. We just go by what they got. We just go by who they are in the the world scheme. They didn't sit down and have a buddy-buddy powwow and and check out if each other really believed what each other believed. He saw a big famous person that he could use, and, and he had a good product and thought they would mix together very well. How often do we do that? Check out who you're hanging out with. Because I can tell you right now, if you get pulled over and who you're hanging out with got stuff they shouldn't have, that cop don't care that you didn't know. Okay? You're going to get some nice silver bracelets and you're going to have misery loving company in a little T90 room with a toilet that y'all going to get real close together on. Because you're going to pee in front of each other. Okay? So, so if I didn't get you to stay away from it before, I hope that picture gets you to stay away from it. Know who you're hanging out with. Some of us have settled and it's gotten us in a lot of trouble. Compromise produces cracks. Cracks produce chasms. And then it goes forth from there. And here's what we do. We justify this stuff. We justify it. Think about what we say. Oh, that person's not really all that bad. Right? That's what we do, though. Or we even say, here's my favorite one. Now, this is, this is against you church people only, all right? So if you're not a believer in the room, this ain't against you. Church people will say this right here. Then leave a church. Right? Or, or a group of believers, whatever you want to call it. I don't just mean a building. They'll leave and they'll hang out with ungodly people. And here's the line they'll use. I love it. I love it. Some of y'all use it, so you're not going to like it, right? But but I love it. I love it. They use this line right here. They don't judge me the way the church was judging me. Hold on, it gets deeper. They say, they don't hold none of my faults against me. I let them say it and I'm like, uh-huh. And then they get all happy like something good's going to happen. And they'd be like, isn't it wrong that they judge me and they hold my faults against me and the world doesn't do that? And I say, no, it sounds like exactly what scripture says. The world ain't got no standards. They got nothing to judge you with. Of course, they're not going to hold anything against you. The church got standards, the Lord's standards, and we're going to hold people to that standard. Okay. And the minute we stop holding people to God's standard is the minute we failed 
Now, I understand what they're saying. No, I'm not saying in a negative way of beating somebody down or anything like that. But I don't think there's a problem if somebody professes to be a believer and you profess to be a believer for us to hold each other accountable so that we can be a good representation of God's kingdom. Okay? And I don't see nothing wrong with somebody says, hey, man, you're getting a little bit out of line and you need to get it back in. I think that's a good thing. I'm glad I got brothers and sisters that I'm surrounded by that can look at me and say, hey, I don't know about that right there. Maybe you need to, to shift it on over. I was telling uh, the mics. How about that? I was telling the mics right outside on the on the porch. You know, there, there's a store downtown that got some real cool hoodies and T-shirts that I really like to wear. That nine lines. So some of y'all will know, I, you know, I'm as patriot as I can get. So I love it. I think that'd be great. But some of them have phrases that I should not wear. So luckily, the last time I was there, I had some counsel that said, I don't know where you could wear that at. And they were right. So I couldn't get it. I couldn't get it. You know, the devil, well, here's what the devil is. The devil said you can buy it, wear it at the house. But my house got to stay clean, too, so that ain't going to work. Hey, Ro- Rolo May says this. This is a psychologist I know nothing about, but I give him credit for this quote. I'm, t- I'm telling you that because I don't want anybody Googling this guy and following anything else he says. But his quote is good. He says, man is the strangest of creatures. He's the only animal that runs faster when he's running in the wrong direction. Tell me it ain't true. Tell me it ain't true. We tend to pick up speed when we're going downhill. Right? Right? Verse says this. It was told that Saul, it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. In this bad situation with all this doubt, David accomplished what his immediate goal was. You catch that? He did. He accomplished what he wanted. He wanted Saul to stop pursuing him. Saul stopped pursuing him. Even Saul knew, I ain't messing with the ungodly people. Huh? As ungodly and as messed up as Saul was, even he knew, I ain't crossing that line. Right? And David felt that he had succeeded. But church, listen to me and understand this. Just because you compromised to get the end result that you wanted does not necessarily mean that's what God wanted. Okay? Just because the situation begins to look a little bit better when you submitted to the wrong master, the looks don't matter. The feeling that you get don't necessarily matter. And here's what it produced. These two kind of go together. The third thing, verse four. When we get attitude with God, somehow we get a, a false sense of peace. And there's where David's at. Verse four says this. Word soon reached Saul that David had fled to Gath and he stopped hunting for him. He gets this false sense of security. David had gotten rid of, of Saul's advances by, by running to the enemy. A false sense of security. The world will give you false hope. They'll take you back. They'll give you false hope. All right. There's two things the world promises to do. Scripture is not going to do it. Scripture will take you back, but we're not going to give you a false sense of hope. We're going to call call an ace and ace. Right. Here's the warning. Don't make the mistake of thinking that the blessings in your life are necessarily a sign of God's approval for the choices you made. You hear me? We do that, church. That That's that circumstantial evidence. Right. We talked about it a little bit last week. Sometimes circumstantial evidence don't mean nothing. We don't need a circumstance to prove something. We need God's word to prove something. Okay, we need to, we need him to prove, not the world to prove. David felt better about being there. Look, look at Hebrews eleven twenty five. Paul writing the church and he tells them this. Enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin is what he says. You're enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. David felt better, sure. But now he's out of the will of God. So it's a false sense of feeling better. Sin has, has these exhilarating moments, does it not? Ask any person, ask any addict of anything. There's exhilarating moments with it. We won't lie about it, but those moments are temporary. The pleasures of sin are temporary. Verse five says this. David said, David said to the king, uh, if I have now found favor in your eyes, why would David be wanting to find favor in the eyes of the enemy, by the way? That's like some of us sometimes we want to go out there and make the world like us more. Well, Scripture says we're part of a different kingdom. The world shouldn't like us sometimes. Now, I'm not saying we don't have good character and we're not good representations of Christ outside the building. That's not what I mean. But when we're trying to win the approval of man rather than the approval of God. That gets us in a lot of trouble. Maybe that's what's gotten some churches in a lot of trouble. We wanted to win the approval of man and we wanted to get enough likes on Facebook and we wanted people to tweet about us and, and whatever else all those things are that go on on the Internet about people and we've compromised a lot. Maybe that's the problem. 
Maybe we've allowed compromise to get us because of a doubt and a fear. And that's where David's at. David says, if I found favor, if, if you like me, finally. He goes even further. He says, what? He calls himself your servant. Look at what he says in this verse. Find a place outlying in town so I can live there. Why would your servant live with you? David's really put this guy high up. And it's easy for us to look at it, but how often is it we do that? How often is it we become a slave to something in the world and and we, we put it up on the pedestal a little bit higher than it was supposed to be? And when we do that, we're just pushing ourselves further down. Favor in the eyes of the world? Why? Why do I want to find favor in the eyes of the world when all I need is to find favor in the Lord? Let them give me a place that I may dwell there. Look at the wording David's using. David's not just going for a visit. He plans on staying. And that's us sometimes. We want to visit the world, but after we visit it, oh, I need to find me a place to stay because the world's nice and it feels good and pleasurable and exhilarating and temporary and corrupting and fault. But we forget about all that part, right? We do that. And that's where David's at. This blows my mind, man. He's not just going for a minute. Scripture ends up telling us that verse or the next verse. He stays a year and four months. That's a long time to be surrounded by bad company. That's a long time to be influenced in a wrong way. And the whole time they're there, here's the problem. The whole time they're there, him and his 600 men, they're in a fortified city. They've got formal defense and they get a false sense of peace and security because of their surroundings. And all honesty, they're further away from God and they don't have the blessing of God. So trouble could have come at any moment and taken them out. They aren't safer in the city. They're away from God in the city. I don't want to miss this either because I think it's kind of neat. We always talk about, well, we always try to sugarcoat it with, with this is part of God's plan. No, your, your detours are not part of God's plan. God can use your detours. You understand the difference? But God did not command a detour. There's, there's no detour signs on the Lord's highway. All right? But to show he can use it, because I think he can, and I don't want to take away from that, here, here's a note for you. The Ziglag City, super interesting. That's already supposed to be theirs. Go back to Joshua, chapter 15, verse 31. One of the areas that Joshua and Israelites had already been told to conquer in the promised land. David and the special Israelites are finally living where they were told to capture a long, long time ago. See, God can use our detours. But then I guess if they had done what they were supposed to do a long time ago, there wouldn't have been this long detour, huh? So then this wouldn't have been such a neat thing to to check out. How many detours you've been on? For so long <laughs> that you've totally forgot where you're supposed to be headed. Hmm? How often has Siri had to tell you, turn around, turn around, turn around? Huh? How often? How often does she have to say, slow down? I don't think she ever has to tell us to speed up. That's the problem. Right? How often? Number four, getting out of tune with God. Now, now understand me, this apply, all these apply to everybody. Cause you're either out of tune because you're not a believer, or you're out of tune because you're a believer who's fallen away. You're in one of two categories. You understand? There's only two categories you can be in. That, that's not, think about it. You're either not a believer at all, or you're a believer that's fallen away. If you, if you look, if you're fallen with these, these five things. Number four, David's life gets characterized by vagueness and secrecy. Vagueness and secrecy. Up until now, man, everything David told, whether it was Saul or Samuel or, or one of the other commanders or anything else, up until now, every single one of his statements have been clear and honest. They've been to the point. They tell exactly what he's been doing. They tell exactly how he did it. He even goes into some of the detail on the stories. We get to this part right here, going down to verse 10, and David gets so vague in reporting all his actions. In order to stay in this little sanctuary, we talked about why the where we said why the king would have let him in. He's got a, the king is banking on him being a traitor to Israel. You'll use him as a weapon, right? And this part of it, David talks about these military raids. He does this on neutral tribes, but he gives the impression that he's doing it on Israel themselves. Look at, look at what he says, verse 10. He asked him, where did you make your raid today? 
And David would reply against the south of Judah. Against this other place and against this other place. I'm not going to be Beth. I can't even pretend to say him right. Right? Well, look at what he's saying, though. He doesn't say exactly where he went. He's so vague and secretive in the answer. Ah, just a little bit south of, of that area right there. But he does use the right names, right? The right words. That king hears that. And what's he thinking? He did what he was supposed to do. He's taking out the Israelites. This is great. No, he didn't fall quite that far. But he did put himself in a compromising situation where his life had to become nothing more than double standards, half-truths, and cover-ups. Maybe some of us right now are in that area of life where everything we do is a double standard, a half-truth, or a cover-up. Does it sound familiar? Does it sound familiar when your spouse asks you a question you got to give a vague answer? It sound familiar when your, your parent asks you a question and you got to give a vague answer? It sound familiar when, when a child asks you a question and you got to give a vague answer? That one hits home. That one hits home. What about your boss? When he asks what you did today and you got to give a vague answer because you didn't do jack squat for the company. Right? Think about it, guys. Parents, do, do, do our children not, not do the same thing when we get attitude with God and we get secretive about our action and we get very indirect with our answers, you catch your child doing something wrong. What are, what are you doing? I ah, just playing, vague as it can get, right? Or, or you catch a teenager a little bit later, and you got to ask him, "Hey, where, where'd you go?" I ah, just went for a drive. Yeah, but but where did you drive? Around. Where'd you drive around? Around the street. What street did you go on? The other one, right? Now we laugh about that, but let's apply that to daily living for us Christians, right? We get in the same trap, right? We tell somebody we're going to pray for them, and then they ask, did you pray for me? Ooh. What do you say if you didn't? Hmm. Or how about somebody who you know well enough to, and bold enough to ask you, we need this now, iron sharpens iron. Somebody asks you, hey, man, how, how's your personal devotions going? Oh, well, I read that verse. What verse? That, that one in the Bible. <laughs> what book? I was in the middle, like a little, a little bit over to the left. Huh. Yeah, you really read it and studied it a lot, huh? Right? Or, or how about when we miss church for a while because we've been out playing or, or doing whatever? And we use the excuse, ah, I was out of town, I was busy. How about, let's just be honest, I was lazy. I forgot to pray for you. I didn't open my word. And I've been sleeping in on Sunday doing my own. Or if I ain't sleeping in, I've been doing my own stuff because it ranked higher than being close to God and God's people. Oh, we don't like being direct with our answers, do we? Man, because that hurts us. Huh? Yeah? I learned something in the South. We got a season for everything on hunting, too. Excuses keep on coming. Number five. David Spiral uh, concludes with this. Insensitive conscience. Here's something I kind of learned. This kind of goes with David and kind of doesn't. And I've, I've confessed this to the men in the upper room before. I don't know if I ever confessed it on Sunday. I never understood why I couldn't watch violent movies as a believer. And I mean really violent. Now, I'm not just talking about an action movie. I'm being blunt and honest. Stuff that went way further than it should, I was watching. And I got convicted one day, and I still didn't even know why. You know, I, I would, you know, and I got away from some action movies have scenes that I know I shouldn't watch because my little brain would go to thinking, and that's a bad idea, right? So, so I knew I shouldn't watch those. That was easy. But I didn't understand. I said, you know, Lord, I don't understand why, why I can't watch it. It don't bother me. Like, I don't have the dreams. I don't, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't change any of that. And then it hit me one day. We're not supposed to be ins, in, insensitive to stuff like that. And if we become insensitive to stuff like that, what's really going on inside of us? It's a red flag. It's a problem. It's a problem, guys. Now, some of you are like, why'd you say that? Now my wife's going to tell me I can't watch this when I get home. That's all right. Your wife is your helpmate to build you up and keep you in check. Okay? Now, woman, please do it. Please do it with sensitivity and niceness. (laughs) You laugh, but I'm being serious. There ain't no need to start World War III in your house because y'all had a difference about what pastor said during the sermon. Sensitivity and kindness. Because if not, there may be more violence in the home than on the TV screen. All right? 
Here's what here's what really happens. We just read it so you guys know. Verse 11 says this. Look at verse 11. This is crazy. This is how far David's really sunk. This is what really hit home and let me know how evil this chapter really is. Instead of me trying to sugarcoat it with believers living in the in the world. David did not let a man or a woman live to be brought back to God. Y'all see what that's saying? David made sure to kill everybody. No sensitivity whatsoever to whoever. Men, women, didn't matter. And it even says his reasoning. And I love that it points out because when I first read it, I was thinking, oh, they finally doing what the Lord told them to do a long time ago. No, his motive is a little different. Or they will inform on us. Basically, he's saying they're going to tell on us. And they will say that this is what David did. And this was David's custom during the whole time, one year and four months that he stayed in the Philistine territory. The longer you stay with the enemy, the longer you stay insensitive to stuff that should matter to you. There's where he's at. This is the same David, guys. That's what I talk about. You can't just win one battle. This is the same David that two years ago felt bad for cutting the hem of Saul's garment. Don't forget that. And I know for us it was just a couple chapters, but for, for him that was two years ago. He, he just cut the hem of a garment to show that he was that close and he felt bad about it. Remember, instantly it said that he felt bad. We always leave that part out of the story. We like to make David out this secret ninja that snuck in and, and cut him with a garment and sounded all cool. We always forget about the spiritual lesson that he was sorry he even compromised there in doing a minor thing toward him, right? Now he's committing murder to everybody? David's drifted so far away from God, guys, and it's been a gradual thing. Your drift from God is gra- it's a gradual process. And it gets easier and easier to get into and harder and harder to get out of. It started with doubt, then it went to deception, and now it's gone to violence. David is now fighting wars for profit instead of for God's honor. You remember originally all David would fight for was just to bring the glory to the Lord? Now he's fighting to what? Gain stuff. Sin will take you, have heard this before, sin will take you further than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay. Man, how true that is. Ask somebody who's been trapped in some sin. For a longer period of time. They'll tell you, man, I never thought I'd stay here this long. I never thought I'd go this deep. I never thought it'd be like this. Much later in his life, we know this story more than anything else, probably. David moves out of this or out of this season into being a king. And then there's this moment with Bathsheba. Now, I point that out because this moment with Bathsheba, not only does he, he fall to the temptation of a woman and get himself in trouble. But you remember how he tried to cover it up to protect himself, kind of like what he's doing Right here, he makes sure to kill her husband to look like the good guy. Is that not exactly what he's doing here in chapter 27? (laughs) Catch this. The roots of sin got to be dealt with and they're going to come back in greater strength. The roots of sin have to be dealt with or they will come back in greater strength. I got this this driveway that I put a bunch of money into rock on. It's nothing fancy. It's just a lot of rock. Rock costs money, right? But but I, I go through it sometime and I pull out the little weeds that grow. I'm amazed that a weed can grow through this much rock, by the way. But they do. And I don't need y'all to tell me, no, the seed technically falls a little shorter. I understand that. You ruin an illustration for my kids later on with faith. Okay? So, but but I pull them out. But if you don't pull the root, you know what happened? It'd come on back. It'd come on back. It'd come on back. And it'd come on back. If we don't deal with the root problem of our sin, don't be surprised when it comes on back. And it can stay buried for a long time. It can stay buried for a real long time. Which is scary because then you don't know when it's going to come back. Things might have finally got good at home. Things might have finally got good in your walk. But because you didn't deal with the root, it makes its way right on back in the house. And you better believe Satan is the master of timing things. So he'll do it at the most opportune moment for him and the most inopportune moment for yourself. Deal with the root of the problem. James 4, 4 says this. We wrapping it up. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Wow. Man, James just puts it out there like it is, don't he? Huh? Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Now, church, understand me. People aren't the enemy. 
That's not what the verse says. Okay? The world is the enemy. The world system is the enemy. The world's values is the enemy. People are not the enemy. People are potential brothers and sisters in Christ. Make sure you get that, okay? There's, there's a lot of weight to go with hate the sin but not the sinner. If we would really grab a hold of it and look at stuff the right way. Our problem is we want to hate people because it gives us a, a visible thing to hate. And we can't see sometimes that sin. No, we hate the sin. We love the sinner. But scripture in James is very clear. We can't choose to be a friend of the world system and still stand for God's kingdom. Kingdom law goes one way or the other. You're either part of his kingdom or you're part of the world's kingdom. David gets to this part, and here's what wraps up at the end. This king says, looks at David and he says this. He has made his people Israel utterly harbor him. Therefore, he will be my servant forever. Church, don't get mistaken into thinking that that ain't something Satan tries to say about us. He gets so excited when we fall, and he has this thought right here. He will be my servant. For I will keep him trapped for as long as I can. So much. So look at what he does to jump into the next chapter. Chapter 28, verse 2. This guy actually makes David his, his bodyguard. So not only will the world take you back, not only will the world accept you, the world will also promote you and keep you. I'm just telling you that. Beware. The world ain't got a problem taking you back, promoting you, accepting you, and keeping you. Of course they will. Their standards ain't the same. And that's where we get at the end of this thing right here. This guy has actually made David his bodyguard. It looks super, super dark for David, guys. But you know what? There's a chapter 28. There's a chapter 29. There's a chapter 30. There's a book of 2 Samuel. There's books after that. And they keep on going and going and going. And I tell you this for this right here. I, I, didn't, I didn't want to leave the third point out, even though we're not going to go into it. David gets deliverance. He gets deliverance because this today is only part of David's story. It's not the end of the story. And I don't know which part you're relating with and which doubt and struggle and spiritual decline that you're going with. But today is only part of your story. It doesn't have to be the end of your story. There's a reason God brought you here today to hear this stuff at this moment combined with these songs, by the way. You think speak your name was a coincidence? What if David would have quit talking to his cell and started speaking the name of Jesus? Huh? How much different could that have been? There's not, there's not, a, there's not a doubt in my mind that, that Stacy was led by the Spirit to pick the song Overcomer to conclude with today. My goodness, what a better thing. We need to overcome a lot of junk in our life. Right? David is with the enemy, but he never becomes fully ingrained in the enemy. And thank God for that. Because it leads him to his moment later. And believers, please understand me right here. We may fall into the world. We may live in the world. But scripture tells us we are aliens to the world. We are aliens to the world. We don't belong to the world's value systems and the way the world does stuff. Our loyalty belongs to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. And we're to keep him first. Is it easy? No, my goodness, it's not easy living with the world. But Jesus does say a couple things in John chapter 16, verse 33, like, uh, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. He don't lie. That's why I tell you another thing about Jesus. If man had written this book, you wouldn't have had phrases like that. What you would have had is you're going to get peaches and ice cream and overcome everything in the world. No, Jesus looks at you and says, in this world, you're going to have trouble. In this world, you're going to have a lot of problems. But I'm going to walk with you through them all. I've overcome every single one of them, and so can you. And regardless of how smart we think we are, regardless of how long we've been believers, regardless of how high we've climbed up on that spiritual ladder, every single one of us in this room, chapter 27, is a warning that we are capable of falling into spiritual decline. We are capable of getting ourselves in discouragement and despair and letting doubt mess us up a lot. Solve it quickly so that we don't sink as far as David did. Solve it quickly so that hopefully we don't have to go through long periods of unwanted trouble and tribulation. Read this last verse on the screen. Go one more, KB. And who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 
I love that it's a question because only you can answer it. I can't make you believe. I can't make your faith increase. Your mama and your daddy can't do it. Your spouse can't do it. Parents, you can't do it to your children. Right? Children, you can't do it to your parents. And who is the one who conquers the world? And then it answers. The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. If that's not you, that's the first step. If that's you, it's time for us to start conquering the world instead of letting the world conquer us. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much this morning, God. God, I thank you for, I thank you for your blatant honesty with David, Lord God. God, not only the temptation he faced, but the fall that he had. And God, I pray today, Lord God, that we heed to your word in the New Testament, Lord God, where you tell us that everything's written for us. For good reasons, Lord God. God, I pray today that we take those warnings that are written there for us. And that we open our eyes to see him before we get trapped like David did. God, help us to be courageous and strong, Lord God. God, help us to realize that we are yours, Lord God. And in you, there is so many promises of who we are. We are more than just church members, Lord God. We're more than just believers. God, we are are sons and daughters of you. Chosen by you, Lord God, to be adopted into your family. Lord God, to represent you. And Lord, I pray right now, Lord God, that you put a burden on us to start doing a better job at representing you in this world. For it's in your great name we pray. Amen.